0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred
1: on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClendon, and I'm looking at my note in front of me, Wade, and I've made a last-minute decision to change my original plan which was to make some sort of face hugger analogy for today's episode but i think it's best just to leave hr geiger out of it
0: yeah well I i was wondering in the new alien movies do you think they're gonna
1: wear face masks Will that
0: protect the actors from the actual aliens?
1: Well, if they do, that would actually address one of my big long-standing questions with the habit of characters in these movies just kind of going onto alien planets without any protective gear mm. whatsoever. So, you know, I'm for it. Listeners, today in the episode, we
0: have Sarah Welch Larson on. We're gonna be talking to her about her new
1: book, Becoming Alien. Yeah, we've got a really exciting conversation in store for you there. We're also going to be offering a review of a perhaps little-known movie, but one from a filmmaker that Wade and I both have a lot of affection for. Chad Hartigan's new film, Little Fish, is out, and we're reviewing it today.
0: It's aliens and sea creatures coming up on this episode, episode 282 of Seeing and Believing. We are here with this week's episode of Seeing and Believing. We're going to talk about the new film, Little Fish, here in a moment. But Kevin and I are joined by a friend of the show, Sarah Welch Larson. Sarah Welch Larson writes about aesthetics of science fiction and character-driven narratives in film. She's interested in feminist theory and theology and in stories about agency and creation, particularly regarding cyborgs and androids. And she's here to talk about her new book, Becoming Alien, The Beginning and End of Evil in Science Fiction's Most Idiosyncratic Film Franchise. Sarah, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me, and thank you for saying the whole book title. Say that five times fast. I guess.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I got to idiosyncratic, I was like, I'm going to mess it up. I know I'm going to mess it up. But, I always uh, <laughs> misspell
2: it on the first try, so I'm there with you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there are those words that, that just don't work for me. I can't memorize them. I cannot memorize how to spell them. Mm-hmm. Uh, idiosyncratic might be one of those. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. Last time you were on, you talked to me. And then the time before that, you talk to Kevin because you're kind of like our, our guest in waiting. But now we're all on together, which is great. Woohoo. <laughs> so I'm excited about this. I'm also excited to talk about your new book, which is which is out now. Let me give our listeners a small synopsis before we jump into this, and we're going to talk listeners about this book. I think you're really going to want to pick it up. It's going to provide some fascinating reading and discussion. So, the Alien films are perceived to be fractured, a fractured franchise, each one loosely related to the others. They are nonlinear, complicated, convoluted, a collection of genre movies ranging from horror, horror to war to farce. But on closer examination, the threads that bind these films together are strong and undeniable. The series is a model of Catherine Keller's cosmology as a cycle of order out of chaos, an illustration of her concept of evil as dis creation. That is the synopsis of becoming alien. And Sarah, as I was reading the book, your first line really jumped out at me. You say, science fiction provides a useful framework for considering issues from our own world in the context of another. We can lift a concept in equality prejudice, gender, fear of nuclear fallout, the value of human life, and drop it into a new and strange setting. And you go on to talk about how that's done in the Alien franchise. As we jump in, I want to get maybe another example of a time when you were watching a movie, and a science fiction film, and you saw something that either... I don't know, made you reconsider something that you believed or made you just see the world in a different light? Because I I think it's easy to kind of pass on science fiction films, but they're so important and I think so powerful for helping us see the world in new ways.
2: Yeah. um, The first movie that comes to mind uh, was actually one of the first ones that I watched when I was like really getting into movies. It was probably end of college or so. And I went to go see... Gravity, Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity, Um, in IMAX, so like the biggest screen possible. And I think the entire time I was just gripping the sides of my chair (laughs) really tightly because like one of my weird, um, like most uh, irrational fears is like being stuck adrift out in space. Um, But Gravity, it was pointed out to me shortly after I I finished watching the movie that it is really a movie about prayer. And when that was pointed out, I think my entire um, experience with the film just sort of shifted. Like, I hadn't realized that movies could be about one thing, like about a plot or whatever's going on on the screen, and that they could also be about something else at the exact same time. Like, I think I had heard that intellectually, but it had never really become quite real for me up until that point. And so I rewatched Gravity shortly again after I had heard that, and... The second time I saw it, I think everything just sort of snapped into place. It just it made sense in a way. Like it is a model of someone who is lost and alone, um, who doesn't really know which way is up or down, and who basically all she can do, I'm not sure that she even has any faith of her own, but all she can do is keep repeating the words Houston and the blind. Do you copy Houston in the Blind? This is what's happening to me. Like, can you hear me? Can you give me directions? Um, And that touched me really deeply. And I don't think I ever really looked back. Science fiction's always been one of my favorite genres anyway, growing up. But that movie in particular really solidified it as a favorite of mine, because it deals with really heady concepts. And it can also just be terrifying or wonderful or (laughs) just a really good time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's that's a really good uh, example also of just how science fiction can work on, on multiple levels, just it, even in different uh, viewing experiences. So you're not just taking it all in at once. You can like watch it one time and enjoy it on one level. The next time it'll be not a different film and not even a completely different experience, but just you appreciate it on a different level. I, I did find the introductions discussion, Sarah, of science fiction to be really thought-provoking both for what you say are the possibilities it has and also kind of what you think good science fiction isn't. Towards the end of the introduction, you say specifically good science fiction does not preach. And um, I think that's actually, you know, there might be some science fiction writers who might take issue with that. I'm thinking of, you know, Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek just loves its uh, didactic morals and everything. So I'm kind of wondering... Like, uh, at what point did you kind of arrive at that ethos of, of science fiction, or, or what goes into that, uh, that assertion, I guess, about uh, what makes for a good science fiction story and, and film?
2: Some of it's personal preference. If I'm being perfectly honest, um, I I don't like being preached at, so I have a hard time with stuff that does preach at me. And I mean, Gene Roddenberry's, especially the original Star Trek. There is a lot of of didacticness, but there's also a lot of room for imagination and room for people to take the series and to take that world into really different and surprising um, places. Like I think Star Trek was one of the first like big fandoms at least for science fiction um, in the 60s. And I think that the fact that it opened up so many people's imaginative worlds and allowed them to imagine themselves or imagine what could have been or imagine what they wanted to see the characters do, I think balances out a little bit the, the didacticness of Star Trek for me. But for me, science fiction is always about Um, imagination and imagining what could be or what might have been um, and then going from there and extrapolating out from that. Um, Not so much saying this is how the world is, but maybe this is how the world probably could be. And then what are we supposed to do with it?
0: No. And I think that's just a fantastic way to kind of look at science fiction in general. And I think that you do that here with the Alien franchise. And I am I am impressed at the way you examine each film on its own terms, while also saying, hey, they are unified in many ways. And one of the central focuses of your book is uh, Keller's face of the deep. And before reading your book, I was unfamiliar with that work. Could, could you take a, a minute and kind of give us, I don't know, maybe a synopsis of Keller's Face of the Deep, and then maybe tease out some connections that you found between her work and the Alien franchise?
2: Absolutely. I'm always glad of the excuse to talk about Katherine <laughs> Keller's work. Um, so Face of the Deep, um, A Theology of Becoming, uh, is a theology work by Katherine Keller, uh, from 2003, and in it, the pr- the primary focus of the book is to challenge the doctrine the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Um, she specifically looks at the first two verses of Genesis, um, where it talks about in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the um the face of the earth was formless and void. And she takes that idea of the face of the earth being formless and void as a direct challenge to this doctrine that God created the earth out of nothing. Her idea is that God took the possibility of being and ordered it in a way that creation could form relationships so that created beings could be in relationship with each other and with God. And then naturally from that idea you get Um, This concept of sin, where sin isn't necessarily like violence or sin isn't necessarily just disobedience, but sin is inherently the denial of the interrelationships between created beings um, where human beings say like, no, you're not as good as me, therefore, like, I'm going to do this to you or human beings deny their relationships with God and disobey. It's it's all a denial of relationship and then in in doing that sin becomes a way of treating the other as not being as important as yourself. Um and through that lens I think the Alien series sort of makes a lot of of a lot of sense. You you have a lot of different examples of evil within these movies where the alien denies the humanity of the creature of the of the people that the alien comes up against it literally covers their faces it treats them as incubators for its young it it dismembers them in horrifying ways but then you also have the evil things that human beings do to each other either on a corporate level where the Weyland-Yutani corporation literally takes the crew of the Nostromo in the first movie and says um you're not really like your your lives are not our priority our priority is to be able to get this thing that will allow us to make more weapons and then make more profits so the crew's life is essentially forfeit their existence and their relationships as human beings both to their employer and then to each other are negated by the company and that is one of the one of the greatest evils that could possibly be committed And then that concept of evil just sort of naturally spirals outward throughout the rest of the alien movies. Every single alien movie takes that concept of evil and pushes it a little bit further. So aliens goes a little bit more into, well, what does this world look like if this is actually true? Um, And I just found that fascinating. And I found that that was the only way for me to be able to read all of these movies as being, I don't know, a... I don't know a cohesive universe because they're all very different, and they're all very different genres, <laughs> and they're all very different storytellers. And even though the bare bones of the stories are the same, they're really elaborating on on the same concepts. They're telling it the story in different and much more complex ways. The further the further you go into the franchise, which I found very interesting.
1: I want to actually read a a quote from uh, a a part towards the end of your book that kind of talks about uh, that conception of evil and and how it's woven through the entire Alien series. Because, I mean, number one, I think it's a really interesting articulation of that theme, but it also is going to lead me to uh, a question about the writing of the book that I, it, I was wondering about as I was reading it. So you write, Evil in Alien Covenant is the same as it was in Prometheus and in Alien Resurrection and in all the other Alien films before them. It is the attempt to assert control over chaos, to repurpose what has already been created through exploitation, and in so doing, destroying it. It is a denial of the potential of all that is yet to come, present and future, and it is the use of that potential for personal gain. It is the discreation of others, the negation of their personhood, and the denial of their inherent worth. And I mean, obviously, that's just a very crystallized view, I guess, of a certain vision of evil as we see it in the alien films and in Ke- keller's work but i was really curious while i was reading becoming alien about how you kind of arrived that lens through which to look at the aliens films was this something that you kind of like realized while reading keller's work and thinking man i gotta write this about alien or was it something more that you discovered in the process of writing about the alien films in, in this context or in others
2: Um, combination, I think. Um, I was always thinking about about the concept of alien in the alien movies, and I really wasn't able to find a good lens through which to do it. They they sort of eluded me for a really long time. And then my husband, who has an MDiv, uh, actually introduced me to Keller's work and said, you should probably read this. Um, And as I was reading her work, everything sort of the word you used crystallized really makes a lot of sense. I think um, everything sort of snapped into place. Um, and as I was thinking about the alien movies through Keller's lens, they all started to cohere. And then as I was reading Keller, I felt like I, I understood a little bit more about what she was talking about when I c- held it up in comparison to what was going on in the alien movies. So it's it's kind of a two way street really. Um, it wasn't really trying to fit her ideas to the film franchise, and it wasn't trying to to explain her um, using Alien. It was it was really a, a both and conversation in my head.
0: It it also kind of brings to mind this really the nature of film criticism as we are making these connections and attempting to be true to the intent. Of the director and the screenwriters, also understanding that films can can kind of change; they can take a mind of their own. And Kevin pulled out this great quote from your introduction, and I'm gonna I'm gonna steal it. I'm gonna read it. Uh, you say it's important not to twist Alien to meet the understanding of morality, or God forbid, the understanding of scripture. Nor should scripture be twisted to meet the Alien. And the follow-up question that kevin had written down on this note was uh, what do you see as this potential uh as the potential pitfalls inerrant in film criticism written from an explicitly christian point of view and that's something that even even 280 something episodes on i feel like i'm still trying to master Uh, how do you see that relationship
2: Mm, um, I think it kind of gets back to that first question about didacticness. Um, I don't know what the actual word is, but it, it gets to that question about whether or not art should be didactic or whether or not art is good if it is didactic. And I think that the same thing holds true for criticism as well. Um, when you're criticizing something, even through a Christian lens, you have to engage with the art on its own turf and on its own terms, while also recognizing like the viewpoint that you are coming from and then striking a balance from there. And I think that the biggest pitfall, at least that I tend to fall through, is trying to just mark a film down for the statements that it makes about morality without necessarily trying to understand the context within which those statements are made. So I don't know, counting swear words, or I don't know, count like, that could be potent, that feels like the worst of film criticism in a way is just counting, marking down all of the bad things and then subtracting that from a score. Um, I don't think that movies are necessarily here art is not necessarily here to teach us how to live in a way i think that they're there to reveal some sort of truth in the world and then it's our job to figure out what to do with that truth whether that's applying it to our lives in some way or just sitting with it because it's really uncomfortable um so a lot less and and i think that in doing that Um, you also make art a little bit more of a two-way street too. You're not just looking to art for directions um, or you're not looking to art for instructions. Um, You're also looking to engage with art and then maybe push back against it a little bit. Um, And I think that some of the best criticism, I I would love (laughs) to be able to eventually do this someday um, with my own criticism, but I think that the best criticism... Um, understands where the art is coming from and then rises up to meet it.
1: Yeah, I think the... So I I read that quote in in the introduction. That's kind of how I knew that uh, we were in good hands with this book because that is uh, pretty much singing my song as far as just a frustration with... uh, an ethic of Christian film criticism that sort of like looks for Christ figures under every rock, or like you know what mm-hmm. sermon <laughs> illustrations can we get out of the Matrix, or you know whatever. Um, so I, I really appreciated that, and um, I think it's it's interesting also to see how you walk that tightrope in this book as well. Because as I was reading it, I, I wasn't I haven't read Catherine Keller's work, and as I was reading, it, I was like, I'm not sure if I'm entirely. Uh, convinced by her framing of the Genesis account, but yet uh, reading the reading your use of it in this book, it was helpful for me to just sort of suspend that and and let you take me on this journey through the alien films and kind of discover that I guess uh, with you. And that I don't know. Do you, do you find that you often do that when you uh, interact with a film where you? Um, maybe suspend judgment or is it more of a sense of you more enter fully into a perspective and then exit that perspective when it comes times to organizing your thoughts around it?
2: I think with the best movies, I think with the best movies, um, I am able to suspend judgment a little bit, enter into the movie's world um, and then come out changed a little bit. Either by deciding, no, this is something that I reject, or by deciding, actually, this, this has a seed of truth in it. Um, And I think that that holds up under the light of day as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think that's a great way to go about it. And just kind of, Uh, examining the perspectives of others and allowing ourselves to be challenged, whether it does change our perspective or just help us to kind of see the world differently or see others differently is, is so very important. Sarah, thanks so much for coming on and talking about your book, Becoming Alien. It's out now. Where can our listeners get a hold of this work?
2: Uh, they can get a hold of it from the Stock website. That's W-I-P-F-A-N-D-S-T-O-C-K. Um, they can also find it. Um, I have been shouting about it constantly um, on my own Twitter account, so that might be the easiest way to find it um, at this point right now is a link from there.
0: Yes, and I tried googling "becoming alien," and there's this kind of weird, strange paperback fiction book that pops <laughs> up. So you, you need to put "becoming alien" Sarah Welch Larson, and you can grab it there. <laughs> uh, and what's I, cool is there's a there's a, a paperback copy and a hardback copy, which I think is is cool. If either one you want.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and then there will also be an ebook version coming out in about a month as well from the publisher. So if <laughs> ebook is your thing, uh, we'll have you covered as well.
1: Yeah, very much uh, worth our listeners' time. And I'll I'll add to what Wade said that when you're googling stuff related to the alien franchise, just
2: you know be be aware. <laughs> Put safe search you know? on, probably is it, a good idea.
1: Yeah, H.R. Geiger uh, related image searches can get pretty gnarly so you know just uh exercise a good dose of wisdom but definitely uh keep an keep an eye out for for sarah's book because it is is definitely worth your time whether you're a a critic or just a a lover of films
0: sarah thanks so much for coming on
2: thank you so much for having me this was great it's a shame we can't take some of them the dogs they've been putting down so many recently
1: What? Yeah, just like a puppy or something. I'm sure Blue wouldn't mind. What?
2: You said we couldn't. When? We had an argument about this last week, and then we were just about to get into it again on the bus.
0: (laughs) Very good.
1: You know,
2: Almost. This is, an, this is an ongoing argument that we've been having and we're just about to get into it. Half an hour ago. It, it was just now. I don't remember that. Oh my God.
1: Did you know this was happening?
2: No, how am I gonna know? I forgot. Do you know who I am? Yeah, you're my wife. I'm Evita. Where did we meet? What's your father's name? Where did you grow up? Emma!
1: We want to thank Sarah Welch Larson again for coming on the show. It was a really interesting conversation and uh, I really hope that we spotlighted that book as it's coming out. It's really a good one. I also want to put a spotlight, Wade, on uh, our Patreon page, which is one way that our listeners can help support the show, help keep us going, and maybe get a few rewards on the process. There are lots of tiers that you can donate to when you become a patron. One of those is the $5 a month tier, and I'm going to catch you off guard a little bit this week Wade, I'm going to turn the question around on you. What can you buy for $5? <laughs> okay. Okay.
0: So we're talking about alien and alien. The first alien was directed by Ridley Scott. Of course, sir, Ridley Scott. I have no idea if he's a sir. Um, and for five bucks, you can actually get a VHS copy of his Russell Crowe film, A Good Year. And what people don't know is this was actually the last film that made it to VHS before they discontinued uh, VHS cassettes altogether. So it really is a collector's item.
1: It, I you, you know, I don't really follow that kind of stuff that closely. Is that true? Is that really uh, <laughs> the last film that ever was released on VHS? I know, probably not. Probably not. Aww. But... It, there's a chance. <laughs> here, well, here I was hoping that you had actually just had this incredible factoid just pulled out and ready to go for that question. So I'm a little bit disappointed, oh, but man. <laughs> that maybe that was just too good to be true. Mm-hmm. A very impressive thing to find for $5 in any case. But if you don't want to get Russell Crowe's uh, vehicle a good year on VHS, you can send those $5 our way. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast and donate there. We would love you forever if you did that. But for now, Wade, we're going to turn our attention to our review of Chad Hartigan's Little Fish. This is a film that just came out, uh, I think a few weeks ago, and is now available on demand on most streaming platforms. Here's a synopsis of the film. When a married couple, played by Jack O'Connell and Olivia Cooke, finds that a new sickness is sweeping the globe, one that causes the infected to slowly lose their memories. They have to contend with the looming specter of forgetfulness, the fate of their own relationship, and what happens when one loses one's experiences with the person they care about the most. This is, of course, as we mentioned before, directed by Chad Hardigan. You and I both weighed... Really liked Hardigan's film, This is Martin Bonner, a really sensitive indie drama uh, that was just, did not get a whole lot of attention, but was uh, really astounding in the sensitivity of its portrayal of its characters and just how Hardigan was able to find such luminous drama in such a small-scale story. With Little Fish, Hardigan turns to more genre fare. This is kind of a sci-fi inflected, maybe a little bit of a dystopia in there. And it's instantly recognizable for anyone who's lived through the past year of a pandemic that ravaged the globe and caused all sorts of problems. And Hardigan himself is working with a bigger canvas as well. It's not quite as small scale as this is Martin Bonner, but it features some recognizably Hardigan touches in the writing and in the directing. So to get us started, Wade, I'm really curious to know, uh, basically, what did you think of this film? Did you think that Hardigan trying out some more genre fare works for him? And uh, how did you find the story overall to work on an emotional level?
0: Yeah, well, I I like this film, just to kind of put my cards out there. I think this is a a movie that more people need to be talking about, especially in 2021. And I can only imagine some of the pandemic centric movies that are going to be, be, that are going to be releasing in you know the next few years. And I just, I appreciate this film and I believe it was written and shot before the pandemic began. And yet it just, it it feels it feels so real what makes this movie great though is hartigan's human characters and these characters are fully realized and their relationship is fully realized and when it comes to this pandemic there there's really kind of not a lot of information there for us in terms of how this pandemic this disease spreads and really kind of the outside world, we get glimpses here and there, but it doesn't need that because we have two characters that we care about and we're, we're truly kind of working through this grief process with them. And so I think based on the dynamics of that relationship at the center of this film, uh, this movie really excels and I think it's, I think it's really good.
1: I think it's quite strong as well. It is something that uh, just I, I haven't been seeing a whole lot of talk about it, which surprises me given that you know, unlike this is Martin Bonner, Hardigan is working with two you know relatively big name stars at least in in. Uh, relatively speaking, Olivia Cook, of course, is pretty well known. She was in Ready Player One, if if nothing else. A lot of audience members will recognize her as uh, Artemis from that film. Uh, Jack O'Connell has starred in smaller Affair, but has built up a really strong resume in those kinds of films. And seeing them both together in this film was just it was it was nice to see Hardigan getting a chance to really um again like have that bigger canvas to paint on um i think that uh i still might prefer him working in a slightly smaller register there are certainly parts of little fish that i think uh are stronger than other parts i think that there are portions of this film that uh maybe try to they when they elaborate on the what's going on in the wider world during this pandemic of this uh this fictional illness or when Hardigan kind of goes more into the science of you know possible treatments for the disease i think that maybe the film loses the thread a little bit um and i think it's strongest when he has almost this malik inflected indie romance going between uh his two main characters there are, our sequences here where we're seeing their relationship play out while uh, Cook narrates her emotions in voiceover that feel that do feel very Malikian in a lot of ways. And in those moments I think it's one of the stronger films that I've I've seen so far this year. And in any case it's a it's a strong one and should really I don't know, like I said, it should get some more attention for sure.
0: Yeah, I, I think they're just there are scenes that and images that are uh, burned into my brain. I don't mean that in a, a negative way. And it's funny, I, I didn't think about Malik too much when I watched it, but I can definitely see the connection there. There's one scene where Cook's character has to put down a dog that has been in this humane society for a certain amount of time. And the camera just kind of watches her hand as she pets the side of this dog, as this dog slowly stops breathing. And it's images like that, that I think really convey the core of this film. It's about loving individuals and knowing that one day that you will lose them, uh, that they will lose you. Marching towards that inevitable moment, and these two characters happen to be on an accelerated pathway, and and they know it. I think there are some other scenes with some amazing images. Uh, Hardigan will oftentimes employ too this uh, sort of slow zoom on a number of different scenes, which just adds to the paranoia. And so this movie, I feel like, balances a lot of different emotions. There's this claustrophobia, uh, this helplessness, the sense that you know we don't know where this illness is coming from, we don't know how to stop it, we don't know what to do. And it is, in some ways, a horror movie. And then it's also a movie about a relationship and about the memories that make up our relationships. And I appreciate how when the characters are talking about certain moments, they're talking about these smells, they're, they're talking about these feelings. And Hardigan really kind of digs down into what makes memory. And memory is a slippery subject, and it's kind of hard to depict memory on film because... Memory is everything. It's not just what we see. It's what we hear. It's it's what we smell. It's what we experience. And those experiences and all those dynamics really affect the way that we record what happened. And as Hardigan is telling these scenes, he'll he'll tell multiple scenes um, multiple times in a different way each time. And some of this is based on characters who are forgetting because of the disease and other times it's based on subjectivity and so you get to see a relationship play out from two different perspectives one moment can mean two different things and uh, i think that really says a lot about the way that we grow close to one another and the way that we get to know one another celebrate and remember one another
1: yeah, it's that impressionistic feel that I think is this movie at its strongest. the the way that hardigan is is able to suggest the experience of a moment uh, and how that can take on the same weight as as a literal memory. So he does employ a, a few devices that, you know, are pretty, I, um, you, you would expect to see them in a film about memory loss. You've got that shallow focus. He often employs, uh, you know, different focus tricks to suggest kind of a blurring of a character's memory, or, or things that they are just kind of receding into the past for them, and that they can't quite grasp anymore. Those, you know, you kind of you you expect to see them and and you're gratified when you do find them but i think the the moments where he stages kind of different versions of the same past event as different characters are either remembering them or discussing them goes a long way towards plumbing a dimension of memory that maybe doesn't isn't quite as well trod which is that uh the these uh, false memories or these or these half true memories that these ones that the characters who are slowly forgetting things have a tendency to cobble together false memories out of bits and pieces of true events in their past. Um, Hardigan shoots those with a similar immediacy to the way that he shoots the sequences of of fully true events, of, of sharper memories of things that actually happened. And that really gets at what uh, Cook's character says to her husband, which is that, you know, is, is our, our love for each other, is it just based on a foundation of past experiences? Like, is that all our love is, is just fond memories of experiences that we had together? Or is it something more And that's a really productive tension for Hardigan to play up both in the filmmaking and in the way that he uh, foregrounds Mattson Tomlin's uh, writing in the screenplay to really make the audience think about that as well. And when the film kind of reaches an unexpected conclusion, the way that that kind of causes the whole film to almost uh, reflect in on itself and, make statements about maybe what the nature of love, what the nature of committed relationships is. I think that's where the film is, again, really strong. And doing some things that I don't know that I necessarily expected to to see a, a film of, of this size do.
0: Yeah, well, and I, I guess when I heard the synopsis, before I knew it was Hardigan's film, I was just expecting this rather drab, depressing tale of a character losing his memory, but it's it's much more than that. And part of this is due to the non-linear storytelling. And as you watch the movie, it's up to you to kind of figure out where these events go because we see scenes, we revisit scenes, we go back and forth across time as characters are talking about their relationship. And for someone, for for me, who's taken some time to write about certain experiences in my life, I found that there are a lot of scenes that tend to bleed together. And I can't really say which one happened before the other. And some of these, I can't even really say, well, I know I was this age. And then there are other scenes, you you write about a, a childhood experience or something that happened when you're in college, and we have this sense or this proclivity to using a single story to define or organize large bits of memory and experiences. That's just kind of what we do. We'll tell a story and it will in a sense be a metaphor or an illustration for large portions of our life or a certain particular time in our life. And we see that kind of happening in this movie. And it's really, it's really very smart. I think it's very clever, but it, once again, it goes back to this relationship and the way these characters are remembering themselves and talking about themselves. And I think, too, the chemistry between Jack O'Connell and Olivia Cook is really fantastic. I think Cooke is, is good in a lot of her movies. She's really great. And one of her best performances is Thoroughbreds. And I was thinking about that performance, which is very different from this one, and just seeing her range and seeing what she's doing here and it all just feels very natural it's it's a well-acted film and you get characters on screen and you you almost uh you almost uh believe that oh it could be in love in real life just because of how well they they do on screen and i think that's that's definitely happening here which adds uh to to the story of course
1: Oh, it's it's funny you mentioned thoroughbreds. That I I had completely not been thinking about that film while I was watching this one. But you're right that man thinking putting them side by side really shows Cook's range as an actress. And thoroughbred, she's playing this very affectless. Um, very, very matter-of-fact character who does not show outward motion at all. And in this film, by contrast, she is just—it's it, a very heart-on-your-sleeve performance, and she really makes you feel the pain that that one would feel watching somebody watching a loved one slowly slip away. And I think, in some ways, the film really relies on her to be able to do that because so much of the rest of the film is, you know, it's it's impressionistic filmmaking. But without someone like Cook to to anchor that impressionism in raw, you know, relatable human emotion, I I wonder if it maybe would have fallen flat. And Cook basically ensures. That it doesn't. I really like a scene about halfway through where um, she is in bed with with her husband uh, Jack O'Connell, and she is talking about haptic memory and how so much of uh, what we remember is tied to sensation, like something we smelled or something that we touched. And she, you know, set, asks him to to touch her at just to kind of like. Try to slow down the process of forgetting for him. And Hardigan uh, has a split screen where he stays on their faces on one half of the screen, and on the other half, he has this extreme close-up of O'Connell's hand, just kind of you know tracing a line along uh, her hip, along her leg, and it's just it's a very intimate scene, not explicit in any way, but the intimacy of of that sequence is pretty stunning and if there's one complaint i had about it it's it's that Hardigan doesn't stay with that moment for longer it's so it's such a wonderful sequence that it feels like a disappointment when he cuts away from that to a scene where this couple is uh searching for a cure for his memory condition it just seems like that is not really what i'm interested in and almost feels like Not what Hardigan is interested in. He's interested in that split-screen sequence that focuses on sensation and the emotions behind it, not so much with the plot mechanics.
0: I I like the plot mechanics. I, I think it adds a new layer for these characters, and it kind of keeps the film moving along. And I think there's some great touches to this disease and i think all of that helps us to understand the severity of it Uh, at the beginning of the movie we see an image of someone floating in the water and it's this fisherman who has just lost his memory and just decides to quote unquote swim home and he's saved by someone and then there's this marathon runner who's just kind of running in the middle of nowhere and forgets to stop running and all of those images are kind of haunting in their own way and we we get a couple of others and so i think that plot and the plot the search for a cure uh, really adds to the desperation of the movie and when when individuals are sick uh, when they're hurting you feel like i oh, you know we do, we would do anything to find a way to bring comfort or to stop this, and so I, I think the plot kind of adds adds that new layer and it makes it, I guess to me kind of interesting because I, I like this this I don't know if you would say science fiction but this pandemic fueled almost apocalyptic story to it all, uh, which elevates this from being uh, you know something like like I mentioned before which is kind of slow, kind of boring this you know, drama, um, but it, it adds a new layer to it, a new wrinkle.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fine. I just, I, it's it's less that it's a flaw with the film, and it's more just I feel like there's a disproportionate amount of love furnished on these smaller, more intimate scenes than there is on the uh, the more plot-driven scenes, which, you know, it, it's more maybe more a matter of taste than anything, but I will say that after a year of seeing kind of the the unique sorts of unrest and anxieties that can take hold, not just of individuals, but of an entire society when they're faced with very serious illnesses and no clear way to fight against it, that it's it's kind of astounding in a way that Hardigan captures that so well on, on film when the full extent of the covid pandemic was not had not yet really taken hold uh that it's it's stunning that he was able to almost see into the future a little bit kind of have to wonder if hard game is working with a crystal ball there because it's very evocatively done <laughs> yeah and
0: there are moments when i'm like why isn't everybody wearing masks Uh, And then there are a couple of moments where characters are asked to wear masks and it just feels, yeah, it feels like, (laughs) like it's a scene, you know, you'd see, you know, in your hometown. Uh, It's, it's, it's pretty wild. Listeners, that is our review of Little Fish. It's currently streaming. You can rent it and watch it from the safety of your home without having to wear masks. So definitely check this movie out. Let us know what you think. You can tweet us at sea belief pod at sea belief pod. You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We've reached the end of our show. This is where we, before we leave, offer something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. Kevin, what would you like to recommend this week?
1: Yeah, so uh, there's a another uh, sci-fi-ish short film that deals with uh, the interplay of romance and time, and the passage of time. And that is Chris Marker's 1962 film La, La Jete. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've butchered French on the show in the past, so apologies to any French speakers in the audience. But La Jete is the story of a person who is part of an experiment uh, in time travel following a... A nuclear conflict of some sort and it's told entirely through uh, voiceover and still images and it's just a wonderful little short film it's a very engaging science fiction story but the fact that marker is able to really wring a lot of emotion out of still images is pretty remarkable and then when he i don't want to give it away but there is a single moment in the film where he deviates from the the still image pattern that he's been uh, working with up to that point is just, it will knock you back into your chair, just how incredible it is to see that in a film that up to this that point has been uh presenting itself in a certain way let's just say that it's a a really uh great film and uh i think it's on the criterion collection so it can be found that way la jeté from 1962
0: yeah i definitely need to
1: see that i i don't i'm trying to think if i've
0: if i've watched something
1: i don't know um (laughs) it's only it's only half an hour so it's it's a Uh, it's an easy sit i have i have Uh, (laughs) the reason at first I didn't
0: recognize it because I would pronounce it much differently, but I think the way you pronounce it is right. Um, But no, the,
1: who even knows it's French. Man. <laughs> I was like, that
0: sounds like this. Oh, yeah, that's how you pronounce it. OK, uh, well, I want to recommend a science fiction film that also deals in many ways with the topic of memory. I've talked about Duncan Jones and his film Moon before in the show, a movie that I really like. His follow-up to Moon, I think, is very good as well. It's the 2011 film Source Code. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal, and it tells the story of this soldier who basically wakes up and he's a part of this, what he believes is a simulation, and his task is to stop and a bomb from going off on a commuter train. And he's got eight minutes and he's essentially kind of living this eight minutes over and over again. And we begin to see what this simulation actually is and we begin to see who Jake Gyllenhaal's character, uh, who he is. And it adds a number of wrinkles to the story. And uh, it's really just kind of, I think, an entertaining thrill ride. Uh, Duncan Jones' Moon and Source Code, I think, are really good. I haven't been impressed by his follow-up movies, um, but he's definitely a filmmaker uh, to watch. But yeah, if you haven't checked it out, it's 2011 uh, Source Code.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't. Duncan Jones direct the the Warcraft adaptation. Yeah. Wasn't that his his yeah. post Source Code thing? And I'd forgotten about Source Code, so I was like, "You're recommending Warcraft as <laughs> his follow up to Moon." But then, then I, you know, I was I was quickly disabused of that notion. I have not actually seen Source Code, which I feel bad about because the uh, concept just sounds fascinating but it's also takes place on a commuter train in chicago mm-hmm. which you know yeah i as a chicagoan i feel like i am duty bound to see that but just haven't made time for it yet so i need to get on that
0: yeah no i i think it's really good i had a chance to see it on the big screen the weekend it was released and um it was great i've seen it a couple times uh, since then listeners that is our episode we want to remind you to rate and review us if you can just go on itunes and search for seeing and believing your cr icon give us a star rating and write out a short review thank you for listening to this week's episode it's brought to you by christ and our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen i'm wade bearden my co-host is kevin mclinathan and until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and
2: Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculturecom network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.